0: This is God Unites, Finding Spiritual Unity in Religious Diversity. Welcome to God Unites. I'm your host, David Risley. Our guest today is Rabbi Arthur Stern of Temple Israel in Springfield, Illinois. Welcome to the program, Rabbi. Thank
1: you. I'm glad to be here.
0: In our conversation today, I'd like to explore three topic areas. First, your path to becoming a rabbi, which is a fascinating story of faith journey. Second, I'd like to talk about your spiritual life, including how you experience God in your life and how you live out your religion and the role of community in your spiritual life. And third, I'd like to talk about your thoughts on interfaith relations and finding common ground in unity in an environment of religious and spiritual diversity. Okay. So let's start with your path to becoming a rabbi, which I think it's fair to say is not the typical or at least the stereotypical path. Why don't you tell us that story?
1: Yeah, it's definitely not the normal path to uh, to the rabbinate, that's for sure. Uh so again thanks for having me I really appreciate it. So you know I grew up Jewish both my parents are Jewish. I was born in the orthodox Jewish section of the Bronx in New York. Uh but my family really wasn't orthodox. It, everyone was sort of orthodox in those days. You know it was it was just different back then. Um we moved to Connecticut when I was like 9 and when we moved to Connecticut we joined a conservative temple. And, uh, and I was raised mostly conservative and I was bar mitzvahed in a conservative uh, synagogue and in Judaism, there's Orthodox, conservative and reformed are the three major denominations. Uh, but I was never like, and my family was never like, you know, super religious. Like we went to temple on high holy days, like most Jewish people do. Uh, we didn't really celebrate Shabbat or keep Shabbat. And we really didn't go to synagogue a lot on Shabbat. Although I will say in high school, when I, uh, uh, when I was um, uh, uh, in high school, I would go to services a lot of Friday nights. Uh, and the main reason I went to s- synagogue on Friday nights was because I played football all through college. I mean, all through high school and through college. And the only way I could get away from uh, curfew the coach would call your house at 7 o'clock. And if you weren't in your house at 7 o'clock, then you had broken curfew. If we had a game on Saturday and you would be penalized, you wouldn't be able to play. However, because I went to synagogue, I was able to get out of the house on Friday nights. So I went to synagogue on Friday nights so that I wouldn't have to be subject to curfew on Friday nights. Um, but, uh, But not necessarily religious however you know i i I do believe in judaism and i did practice judaism uh to some extent when i was growing up but never really religious however i you know i i interestingly enough um i kind of uh destroyed my life many years ago uh around drugs and alcohol and that was a really serious um issue for me i literally uh You know, one night, one day, I was like running the state of Indiana for one of the largest insurance companies in the world. I pioneered an office there for them, and I was running it. I was the youngest, you know, manager they ever hired. I was like in my late twenties, early thirties when they hired. I was in my late twenties when they hired me, and I ran that office for a year. Uh, However, I acquired a a rather large drug habit, and and uh, and I was an alcoholic, and I eventually, if you do that for long enough, it catches up with you. And and so it caught up with me. And, uh, and I really like blew up my entire life. And I, you know, lost everything, I, I sort of would really say that I gave away everything to drugs and alcohol. I lost my career and my house and my car and everything that I thought was really important, literally almost overnight. And I ended up I went through three inpatient drug and alcohol treatments in the span of a year, and one outpatient treatment, and uh, and then I ended up living in a homeless shelter. Um, I lived in a homeless shelter in Minneapolis, Minnesota, for almost ten months, and I worked preparing and serving food to the homeless. We had a we owned a a food center that served about four thousand hot meals a week to the homeless in Minneapolis, and I worked at the food center. And then we had a housing shelter that housed about a hundred homeless people a night, and I worked in housekeeping, cleaning the housing shelter, and I had to agree to do all that work um, for a dollar an hour uh, for thirty eight hours a week, and I lived on thirty eight dollars a week for almost ten months.
0: Okay, let me just interrupt there for a moment. You're talking about a major shift in lifestyle and status here. You were as a successful. Businessman, I'm sure you had uh, for a large, even international insurance company yeah. with, with statewide jurisdiction. You had to have had a fairly decent income. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, and the lifestyle that goes yeah. with that.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I literally went from making uh, in my mid to late twenties, making a couple hundred thousand dollars a year, and this is you know over thirty years ago, to uh, to living in a homeless shelter and making a dollar an hour. I mean, I lived in a house on a lake. I had a townhouse on a lake. I drove around in a Porsche. Um, I had a company car. I traveled for business sometimes. And yeah, I had a very, very serious responsible job for uh, one of the largest companies in the world for a Fortune 50 company. And, uh, and then overnight, like literally at the blink of an eye, I was living in a homeless shelter.
0: I hear you say it eventually catches up with you. There may be people listening who are following some a similar path, or who know people, or maybe even have people close to them that are following that path. And uh, that message that it eventually catches up to you is an important one mm-hmm. for people like yeah. that.
1: Yeah, absolutely, no question. And and you know you can't you cannot have um, you know I had I I literally. Acquired uh, like an eight to ten thousand dollar a month drug habit for about two years, and that, and you can't do that forever and still go on with your life. Like it's just not going to work. And so, even though I carried it out for a long time and I remained successful, really up until the very end, uh, eventually that catches up, and my you know I blew up my entire life, lost my career, my house, my you know everything that I thought was really important, and ended up your Porsche yeah, lost my Porsche. They came and repossessed it one day only because I didn't pay the I didn't make the payment for like four months. And I was, I was mad about that, but you know, they, 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 they don't, they don't like that if you don't make the payment.
0: No, they don't. So, and so here you are working in a homeless shelter, living in a homeless shelter and making a dollar an hour.
1: Yeah. And I didn't tell my family, like I was too embarrassed. And so, you know, I wouldn't like tell my family or, uh, you know, like I didn't let anyone even know like what was going on. You know, it was just too embarrassing. And, and like, I didn't know from homeless. I mean, I grew up in a middle-class Jewish family in Connecticut and uh, I didn't know for, I'm not even sure I ever saw a homeless person before I, before I lived in that homeless shelter, you know, like it was a, quite a shock. Um, and I'll tell you a real quick, funny story. Cause I think it's important and it's a, it's really funny. So when I was living in the homeless shelter, when I got there, I, uh, I had a roommate. And, uh, and not everybody had roommates, but a number of people had roommates. And some people had, you know, single rooms and some people had roommates. When you first got there, you almost always got a roommate. So I had a roommate. His name was Mario. And, you know, we were sleeping in this like tiny little room. Our beds were literally about this far apart, just far enough apart that you could walk through. And so I was sleeping in a single bed about three or four feet away from Mario. And Mario, turns out, was a uh, Colombian drug lord who was actually in the homeless shelter while he was awaiting trial because his lawyer thought it would be a good idea for him to do some volunteer work um, while he was awaiting trial that it would look good for his trial. So he was out on bail living in the homeless shelter. The, The lawyer got him a spot in the homeless shelter, and he was my first roommate. And so... I'm living with Mario for a couple of months. It's about two months before he's gonna go to trial. So I live with him for two months and two months down the road, he's gonna go to trial. And he wakes me up in the middle of the night at like three in the morning. And he says, Art, get up. I got to talk to somebody. And I'm like, Mario, you know, it's three in the morning. Like, what do you got to talk about at three in the morning? He's like, no, seriously, get up. I got to talk to someone. So I sat up on the side of my bed and he sat up on the side of his bed. Our beds were so close, by the way, we couldn't even sit facing each other because our knees would hit. We had to sit like with our knees next to each other. That's how close our beds were. And Mario proceeds to tell me, he says, you know how everyone thinks I'm going to trial for drug smuggling? And I go, yeah, we know your story. You know, he was a major cocaine smuggler, um, a drug cartel guy from Colombia, and he got caught. And he said, well, that's one of the charges, but the primary charge is actually murder. It turns out that Mario stabbed a guy to death in a drug deal that went bad. He stabbed the guy 20 times. And then he says to me, but you can't tell anyone because nobody knows that. Everyone thinks it's just drugs and drug smuggling I'm going to trial for. So then I gotta live with Mario for a couple of more months after he told me that he stabbed someone to death. And like, you know, like, I don't know from this. I'm like this Jewish kid from Connecticut, you know? Like, I don't know from from stabbing someone to death. And that's like pretty personal and, and pretty vicious and, and pretty rageful that you stab someone 20 times. Anyway, I live with Mario for two more months. He goes to trial and he ends up getting 19 years in maximum security federal prison at Stillwater, Minnesota. The t- the day he left for trials the last time I saw him. So uh
0: now as you look as you look back at this from your perspective mm-hmm. now, here you are, a rabbi. Yeah. I mean, we'll get to that. Yeah. I mean, cuz at that t- time time Am I correct in assuming you weren't really thinking in terms of becoming a rabbi? Oh, no,
1: that was nowhere on my radar screen. No, no, no. Rabbi was way in the distance. Yeah, that wasn't even—there was no thought of ever being a rabbi in my life.
0: Okay, so at that point, as you look back now, do you see the hand of God— preparing you expanding your world giving you different experiences both the good and the bad sure. and what choices lead to what consequences and the difference between the good things in life yeah. and the bad things in life and what leads to them
1: you know it's interesting i believe in what i refer to as yad hashem which in he, which is hebrew and it means like the hand of god or divine providence like i believe that that you know the hand of god is in our lives and and has certainly i certainly have a lot of evidence over a long period of time that tells me that the hand of god is in my life and that god has really directed my path and and yes when i look back on it um you know this is the path that i needed to take to become the person who i am today and to do all of the things that i do today uh and it, you know he i believe that god was preparing me for a much bigger journey like you know, there was a much bigger picture that at that time I couldn't see. And most of the time when we're in the middle of something, we, we don't get to see it, uh, but we get shown later on. And if we pay attention, you know, for me, I paid attention and I listened and, you know, God revealed to me what the bigger plan was later on down the road.
0: I suspect that as you laid your head back down on your pillow that night that Mario told you, about having stabbed somebody twenty times to death, that you were not laying down with the thought in your mind, thank you, God, for this wonderful growing experience that I'm having right. here that I'm going right. through. I
1: thought, oh my God, like what what the you know, like I thought, holy smokes, like what did I get myself into? And and you know, I think there was a there was a time when I woke up in that homeless shelter. Um I'd probably been there at that time, I bet I had been there maybe two, three months. It was probably not long before or after when Mario told me that, where I just like sort of woke up and I thought, "Oh my God! Like, what did I do to my life?" Like, and then and I actually thought, you know, like I thought, "God must really hate me because, like, why else would I be in this homeless shelter? Like, what is going on?" Like, I was just perplexed, you know, I was puzzled, and and uh, and and even though. What happened in my life, I totally, you know, today take responsibility for. Back then, I, I, I didn't really understand it, you know. So it was a very, it had a very different look and feel back then. And, uh, and yeah, and I had no idea what was coming down the road. But I knew that that, you know, I had, like, ruined my entire life. And I wasn't sure, like, what the future held. I was really pretty frightened, actually.
0: Well let's talk about what came along the road in your life yeah. after that. So
1: uh so I spent ten and a half months in that or a little under a little about just about ten months in the homeless shelter. And um and then you know, I got out of the homeless shelter and I ended up living with a couple of sober guys. I stayed sober the entire time I was in the homeless shelter and um you know, started to put my life back together and eventually uh, went back to work uh, I did, I, you know, when I got out of the homeless shelter, I worked at the YMCA for a while, just, you know, making like $5. I think minimum wage at that time was like $5 an hour. And I, I made $5 an hour working at the membership desk and in the fitness room, which I thought was a lot of money because previous to that, I was making a dollar an hour. So I thought $5 an hour was a lot of money. And, um, percentage wise, that's yeah, pretty Exactly. Good. <laughs> I got a pretty big raise and, uh, and you know, and I, and I, I just stayed sober and and, and practiced, you know, building a, a really solid spiritual foundation for that period of time. And and I did that for probably about six months before I went back to work full time in the real world. And I was having breakfast with a gentleman one morning who was a major um, player and, and had been the executive vice president of a very large insurance company in the same industry that I had been in. I was having breakfast with him one morning. He was a sober recovering alcoholic. He had been sober about 15 years at that time. He has since uh, since passed. But he was a very important person in my life. And I, I said to him, I said, Randy, you know, like, what's the story? Like, you were at this point in your life. And I said, I'm starting to look at, you know, going back to work full time. And I really don't know, like. What I should do? Like, should I stay in the for you know? Should I go back to the for-profit world? Should I work in the not-for-profit world? I was also interviewing uh, for executive positions at that time with YMCA's in Minneapolis. The um, the CEO of the YMCA in Minneapolis was an amazing mentor to me and really took me under his wing. He's he's also passed. He was a he saw he knew that like me working at the YMCA wasn't like. The end of the road. Like that was just one step in a much bigger journey. And 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 he really was a, a great mentor to me. So I said to Randy, What should I do? And Randy pulled out a pen and a paper and he wrote down a name and a phone number. And he said, Two weeks ago, this guy whose name is Doug Tiemann asked me to keep my eyes open for a really good marketing guy. And you're it. And Doug Tiemann happened to be the executive vice president of marketing and development at the Hazelden Foundation, which was a treatment center. It's the largest and oldest drug and alcohol treatment center in the world. And it was the treatment center. I did my first and my last treatment at, uh, before I ended up in the homeless shelter. And so I called Doug and I interviewed at Hazelden and I got hired to, uh, to do a number of things. I was hired as what was called the manager of community relations at that time, and I traveled all over the country and through Canada speaking on behalf of uh, the Hazelden Foundation, forming strategic partnerships and strategic relationships. And I I worked for Hazelden for a couple of years in a number of different capacities. I pioneered a treatment center for Hazelden in Chicago, which is still there. We bought the old Russian embassy and put a, a treatment center there on Dearborn. Um, and my last job at Hazelden, actually, I was national sales director of Hazelden Publishing. Hazelden is one of the largest publishers of self-help material uh, in, the, in the world. And I ended up, my last job, being the national sales director of Hazelden Publishing. And then I went back to the for-profit business world, back into the insurance industry, where I had you know, been very, very successful, and I became very, very successful again uh, in that world. And, uh, and then I started going back to school. And once I started going back to school, I kind of never stopped. It's like that whole addict and alcoholic thing in me. I first went back and got my MBA. And when I got my MBA, I was actually running. I had helped Prudential start an entire division and was running uh, the uh, central part of the country for Prudential for the group uh, group uh, benefits division, uh, which is what I had done before. And then, uh, and then I ended up, you know, Working for them for five years, I then took a job in Los Angeles, running an operation for a Guardian Life Insurance Company in Los Angeles, and and uh, once I had my MBA, I then decided I wanted to go back to school again, and uh, and I actually looked at going to law school, but I never wanted to be an attorney. Nothing against attorneys; I just you know thought it'd be fun to know the law. And when I and when I was looking at going to law school, a friend of mine told me about a program she had just graduated from, and it was to get a master's degree in spiritual psychology. And so I went and got a master's degree in spiritual psychology, I then- Okay, now- Go ahead. Now, I I gotta interrupt you here. Yeah, that's
0: fine. Spiritual psychology is an unusual area of study. At least until I met you, I had never heard of it. Okay, what is spiritual psychology? So
1: spiritual psychology, it's, it's interesting. Back when I got my degree in spiritual psychology, my master's degree, um, nobody really knew much about it, and the people I I'm fortunate that I went to school at a, a school that really are the pioneers in spiritual psychology. When I went there, they had already been doing master's degrees in spiritual psychology for 35 years, and um, and that was a long you know quite a while ago when I went there. And spiritual psychology takes psychology back to like its original roots, back to like um, intuition and personal connection and talking and, you know, like seeing the loving essence in, in your client. And today, psychology has become much more clinical. So everything that psychology diagnosis today is listed in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. And it's much more clinical. And, and back then, or spiritual psychology in itself is much more about you know, one-on-one contact and and forming that that bond and that partnership and 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 um, seeing the loving essence in somebody else. And in spiritual psychology, we would believe that everybody already has all the answers they need inside of them. They just need some help sometimes, some guidance to to help them get there. And so, uh, so that's more like what spiritual psychology is, and it's become much more mainstream today. You can get degrees in spiritual psychology at many, you know, like mainstream major universities today. Uh, back then, that was unheard of; that you, you know, you just it didn't exist. And then,
0: well, this up to this point, you've already followed a, a, a very circuitous path, <laughs> shall we say? <laughs> you know, from. Uh, you know, you're a successful businessman. You end up, due to your addiction and the consequences of that addiction, ended up in a homeless shelter, yeah. working there for a dollar an hour. You worked your way back up. You obviously had ability and talent, but you also, by this time, you now have two master's degrees. You have a master's in business yeah, an MBA. administration, MBA, and you've got your master's in spiritual yes. psychology. Mm-hmm. I can't wait to hear where this path led you next.
1: So you have to keep in mind that all the time I was getting all these degrees, I I was, you know, like still had my career in business. I was at this time when I got my master's in spiritual psychology, I was running, you know, an operation in, in Los Angeles for a guardian life insurance company. So, again, you know, worked full time, had a serious career while I did all this. And then, after I got my master's in spiritual psychology, I thought, well, now I have like the spiritual side. I should probably get the more practical side and and learn more about that. So I actually went back to school and got a doctorate in psychology as well and uh still, to this day, I do counseling and therapy and life coaching, and you know like sort of take a very holistic approach to helping people who want to make positive change in their lives and so um and so I've always maintained a private you know a private practice. And uh, and so I got my doctorate in psychology. And while I got my doctorate in psychology, I decided to open up a sober house in, in California. And I opened a sober house that I completely funded uh, myself and um, and had that for eight years. We helped people who needed a you know a place to go for eight years. That was really an interesting and, and really a very um, inspiring venture that that I was able to participate in. And and so I opened that and and, and you know, helped run it and stuff for a while. And then once I had my masters in spiritual psychology, my doctorate in psychology, uh, I was still working, at, you know, at Guardian. I had decided um, this goes back about eight years ago now, I guess, maybe eight, yeah, over eight years ago now. I thought, you know what? I'd like to go back to school again and get another degree. So after having sure yeah, why not after having two <laughs> master's degrees and a doctorate. I thought, well, now what do I want to go for? So I started looking at law schools again, and I actually talked to a number of law schools in LA. And while I was looking at law schools, like literally one day out of nowhere, literally, I know this sounds like I'm still using drugs, but I'm not, um, a a voice came in my head and said, why don't you go be a rabbi? And I thought, a rabbi? Like, where did that come from? Like, that was nowhere on my radar screen. Like, again, I went to... Temple on High Holy Days, I loved being in Temple on High Holy Days, but I wasn't like a religious guy. I mean, I was much more spiritual than uh, than religious. Uh, through the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous and, and going to meetings and building a spiritual foundation in a 12-step program, I was much more spiritual than religious, for sure.
0: Okay, can we can we pause yep. right there? Did this this experience, you say God's, this voice came into your mind. I suspect that this was not the first time that you had sought God. Had prayer been a part of your life before that? So
1: interestingly enough, when I got sober many years ago, I literally pray to God every morning and every night, you know, and that's a big part of 12 step programs is believing in a, a, you know, a higher power, power greater than yourself. I call that God, you know, being Jewish, I've always been comfortable with God, you know, with using the word God. And, um, and so I had talked to God every morning and every night, literally for the entire time I was sober. And so at that time, you know, I was probably, I was probably 23 years sober yeah I was probably 23 years sober when I started rabbinical school some of these dates may be off a little bit because I'm I'm over 31 years sober today so so about eight years ago or so uh is when that voice came in my head congratulations oh, thanks I appreciate that yeah yeah so I mean I've 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 had a spiritual foundation and had a relationship with God for many many years um but it wasn't like a Jewish we, relationship with God can
0: we talk okay can we talk about that just a mm-hmm. little bit when you talk about a relationship with god it doesn't it sounds to me like you know a relationship is a two way thing and when you're praying you're praying to god or with mm-hmm. god i mean what is that is this a is this a conversational thing is this a something where you're offering up you're talking to god and you're not getting anything back at least uh, in real time, or is this interactive? Why don't you share with us what that was up to that point?
1: Uh, yeah. Okay. That, that's that's a great question, actually. So, you know, so I have I have a very um, strict regimen of talking to God at least every morning when I get up, and every night before I go to bed. Okay. And that's evolved over the years. Like it's changed somewhat over the years. And really what what that comes from was really, you know, being a sober alcoholic and going to meetings and, and doing the 12 step program, I built a relationship with God. Now I talked to God even back then, many times throughout the day. Sometimes it'd be in LA traffic, you know, I'd be in bumper to bumper traffic and I'd look out the window and say, you know, help God, like I'm gonna go crazy in this traffic. I I just need you to help me like be calm, you know, like that that's a, sometimes my conversation with God is like that. But I believe in just we should talk to God in the language that resonates for us in a way that that resonates for us, and the Talmud even says that you know that that we should talk to God in a language and in a way that resonates for us. and so you know, I just would have conversations with God about what's going on like in in my life and and so that that feeds into when that voice came in my head and said, you know, why don't you go be a rabbi? And I thought that sounded like the craziest idea ever. Like, I thought, oh, my God, like, what? where did that come from? Like, that was never on my radar screen. I never thought about it. Like, it just was never really there.
0: That speaks to me, because a person a skeptic might be saying oh this is this talking to god well he's just talking to himself it's that spiritual mm-hmm. inner self you know and it's a it's actually an inward conversation and yet here out of the blue comes something that nothing that you have said up to this point would suggest would have been in your mind or in your heart to become right. a rabbi something came and it just sounds to me this is something from outside right. you
1: right and and I feel like God guided my path many many different times th- throughout my life of sobriety, and and even getting me, you know, into sobriety and, and all the things that I went through. However, like you know, this was this was really out of the clear blue. Like it just like it just popped into my head, and 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 I don't I had no idea where it came from, but. Being that I have a master's degree in spiritual psychology and that I have had a relationship with God for for a, a long period of time at this point, um, I thought, you know, I need to like I need to give this some, pay some attention to this. I need to give it some credence. And so that night. I actually, when I prayed to God that night, I said, and this this is the truth, sorry, this is what I said. I said, I said, okay, God, here's the deal. Like, if you think I should be a rabbi, this sounds like the craziest idea ever to me. Like, I have, like, I, I mean, it just makes no sense to me. I said, but if you think this is the path I'm, I, I should go down, then you better make it like really clear to me. Like, you got to put it up on a billboard with some flashing lights around it so that I, I recognize that it's the path I'm supposed to go because it sounds like crazy to me. And, um, and over the next few days after that, there were some very clear signs from God that I was supposed to go down the path of looking into being a rabbi. So I started to investigate rabbinical schools. Now, I didn't know any of this when I started this process. I didn't know anything about going to rabbinical school at all or being a rabbi. I had no idea. So it happens, I was living in LA at the time, in Santa Monica, California. And even though there are only a handful of schools in the entire country that are fully accredited and can also give what we call in Judaism, smicha, which is um, ordination of rabbis, uh, there happen to be three in LA. There are three in LA and three in New York and a few others spread around um, that can do it, but there's not very many. It's a very limited thing. So like if you live in Kansas, you, you, there's no rabbinical schools in Kansas, like, or Minnesota, or Colorado, or, you know, like, there's just none. So what happens, I was living in LA. So I actually went and talked to um, the rabbinical schools in LA. And there were some clear signs from God that this is what I was supposed to do. And I did. And I found a rabbinical school, one of the three rabbinical schools in LA, which I eventually attended, was all about like meshing spirituality and Judaism together, and that to that was very appealing to me. And they and my school had a very deep background um, in spiritual psychology, which you know was right up my alley because I had a master's degree in spiritual psychology, and I had no idea that that there were rabbis who talked about spiritual psychology. Yet at my school, at the Academy for Jewish Religion, California, which is where I eventually went to rabbinical school. Um, there were professors who understood that and who taught and who taught those things in classes so you know like that was very appealing to me the other rabbinical schools don't talk about that don't teach it you know it's really very different at the other rabbinical schools so i ended up you know going to the academy for Jewish religion california and uh which is a fully accredited you know program that can also give what we call smicha uh and i and that's where i attended however I didn't realize when I went to rabbinical school when I started this search if you want to become a rabbi and you go to a fully accredited school it's going to take between 5 and 6 years to become a rabbi like there's that's just how it is that's just like how long it takes there's a number of reasons why that is but that's how long it takes and so when I found that out I thought oh my god 5 years that's like way longer than my doctorate I mean I did my doctorate in 2 years um, which normally it would take people three years, but because I'm, you know, a complete compulsive lunatic and drug addict, you know, I, I did it much quicker. Um, that's just my – While you're
0: working full-time. Yeah, while full-time. I was working full-time
1: running this operation for, you know, for, for uh, Guardian Life Insurance Company in L.A. And uh, so – and by the way, I didn't even, you know, like – when I got my doctorate and when I went to rabbinical school and all that, when I got all these degrees, like I never told my company till I was all done, till after I graduated like when i got
0: so you went you went to rabbinical school while you're working full yeah. time a, f- a fairly intense yeah. course yeah. of study
1: and i got my doctorate while i was working full time as well when i got my doctorate um, i said to my boss my boss said to me uh, uh, the week before I was graduating, he just—I just happened to be talking to my boss, and he's like, "Hey, man, what do you got going on this weekend? Anything exciting?" And I said, "Well, you know, it's interesting. My dad's coming to town." He said, "Oh, really? Why is your dad coming to town?" And I said, "Well, the truth is, my dad's coming to town because he wants to see me graduate." And he's like, "Graduate? Like what? Like I'm like, yeah, you know, I went back to school and got my doctorate. I'm graduating this next weekend." He's like, "How did you go to rabbinical school?" And I didn't know, like. And, and when I got when I went to rabbinical school, after I got my doctorate and I went to rabbinical school, my boss, um, both my bosses at that time at Guardian had no idea. I was already at a rabbinical school, graduated, had accepted a job to be a rabbi, was commuting back and forth to Springfield um, and, and between Springfield and L.A. It was during Corona. Uh, and my boss happened to go online and look me up. He was looking up. I got a new boss and he was looking up like all the employees. He was just like go Googling all the empl- all the all the people who reported to him and he Googled me and my name came up because there were articles written about me in the Springfield newspaper and in the Illinois Times and he called me and he's like dude like I got to ask you this. He said like I just looked you up on Google and like your name came up that you're like a rabbi and I'm he's like is that true really? I'm like, yeah. He goes, oh my God, how did you like go be a rabbi and nobody knows? He goes, nobody at Guardian even knows you're a rabbi and that you have a congregation. I'm like, yeah, you know. And and everybody at Guardian knew when I was going to retire. I was very clear, you know, at the time I was going to retire. And I took this job in Springfield um, like 10 months before I was going to retire because I could do both jobs. And I commuted back and forth to Springfield um, to be the head rabbi at Temple Israel and to still do my my job at Guardian um, for a period of time uh, before I retired from Guardian.
0: You know, if a dictionary were to have a definition for overachiever, you could just see, overachiever, definition,
1: (laughs) Arthur Stern. (laughs) Maybe, thanks for saying that, yeah, maybe. But yeah, it was you know. But it's been this is you know. I believe that God has directed my life. Like this is all God stuff, really, David. This is all God stuff. This has nothing to do with me. Like, what do I know from being a rabbi or anything like that? Like, you know, this is the direction God pointed me. I talked to God about it. I prayed for the strength and the and the and the uh, wherewithal and the willingness to 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 you know carry out God's will. And this is what God, you know, directed me to do. Quite honestly, and and. So I I really, it's not about, you know, I really think it's not about me.
0: When we were talking about spiritual psychology, you made the remark that the answers are all within us. This strikes me as something that was an answer that came from outside you. Because nothing that you, I mean, as as you've elaborated Mm -hmm. even, it's just reinforcing my at least perception that this wasn't something inside you. Mm-hmm. This was something that had to come from outside you. Even you were viewing it as this. I, I couldn't have just thought this up. I couldn't. I mean, I, it's not right. in me, right. you know, to come up with this. But I've got to be sure. Yeah. And then you get these confirmatory experiences, right. and you you conclude God's telling me yeah. something that is uh, is quite unexpected, and is is quite a commitment, quite an undertaking, and uh, it took a lot of discipline to do that. And then here you are graduating, you know, being a rabbi and getting a job in Springfield, Illinois.
1: Yeah,
0: I was offered. What does a rabbi in Springfield, Illinois do?
1: (laughs) Same as a rabbi anywhere else, I guess. Um, What does a rabbi do? uh, It's interesting, yeah. You know, and that was another God thing. Like, I was offered a few rabbi jobs, and and I just said, you know, show me which one really is the is the right one for me. And you know, a rabbi, just like a a priest or a pastor or a minister or a reverend, would lead a congregation. A rabbi lead, you know, if you're a congregational rabbi, you lead a congregation. There are a lot of other things rabbis do. Like, I did spiritual counseling as a rabbi when I was in rabbinical school. I did spiritual counseling at a major Los Angeles hospital for a couple of years. Um, And rabbis do that kind of stuff too, like more like chaplaincy work. But as a congregational rabbi, I lead a congregation here in Springfield. And and, uh, I'm the, I guess, the spiritual leader of of Temple Israel. And and I conduct services for Shabbat and High Holy Days. And I do um, pastoral care with people who are in, you know, assisted living facilities. I do all of the same things any rabbi would do, bar mitzvahs, weddings. Uh, funerals, unfortunately, you know, I've done a fair amount of funerals since I've been in, in, uh, in Springfield. And, all the you know, I teach Sunday school, all the things that rabbi would do and the same things that, you know, any, any clergy or religious leader would do with a congregation.
0: Well, let's shift to that third topic I wanted to talk about. You and I became acquainted because of our mutual involvement with the Greater Springfield Interfaith mm-hmm. Association and interfaith. Yeah. Let's talk about that. You're a part of the interfaith community here, and I'd really be interested, and I think our listeners would be interested in hearing your perspective on that, your thoughts about that.
1: Yeah, well, I think you know, I think interfaith is a very, very important and very um, uh, relevant area today. Uh, I think that that people are becoming less religious and more spiritual. And that's not to say that religion doesn't have a place in our lives, um, because I think it does. But I think that that you know we're recognizing today that there are more things that connect us than disconnect us, um, and 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 there's a lot of there's a lot of commonality in spirituality, and and so um, you know I think in the interfaith world. That we as religious leaders and as clergy need to be talking to one another to find the commonalities and the similarities rather than the differences. And this is a very important area. And, and, you know, I was mentioning to you before, I teach um, like a lot of the high schools in town will come to Temple Israel, you know, Catholic high schools. Lutheran high schools. They'll come to Temple Israel, Lincoln Lane College will bring a religion class uh, every semester to Temple Israel and I'll teach them about Judaism. And it's important because, you know, a lot of people don't really know about Judaism and and I think that we don't really do the we don't really do the, the legwork to find out about other religions and other faiths very often. And so I think that that um, anything that I can do to help teach people about Judaism and the commonalities between our religions is very important, and I think interfaith relations is an area that um, that really is is um, very important and very relevant uh, today. And so I try to participate in in that as as much as, as as possible. And I think that the other thing I think you have to remember is that like fifty percent of all marriages today are like interfaith. Marriages, so like we have a lot of interfaith couples at at Temple Israel, where one of the two spouses is not Jewish, and um, and hasn't necessarily converted to Judaism at the time of the marriage. So we see a lot more of that going on, and so I think we need to be on top of really helping people to understand more about other faiths and other religions, and 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 not um, uh, looking at the differences, but looking at the common commonalities, like. In other words, one of the things that's common is that we all talk about the Old Testament, right? We all, all mostly, all religions believe in the Old Testament. Believe in the, you know, what we call in Judaism, what we call the Old Testament, the five books of Moses, the Torah. It's all that's all the same, and um, and what other religions may call the Bible. Um, you know, we all like we all believe in that and we all talk about it. And there's a division that comes when, you know, after Deuteronomy and the New Testament, but like, that's a commonality. We all all talk about the the, uh, Old Testament. So again, we want to look at the, what are the commonalities? You know, we all have religious leaders. We all have um, different rituals and holidays that we celebrate. We all, you know, religions have common language between them. And so I think that we need to To do a better job of, of, um, of having that dialogue. And one other thing I'll tell you that I think is super important is that my rabbinical school, of which I actually now sit on the board of directors of my rabbinical school. In my rabbinical school, we ordain rabbis, cantors, which are the people who chant the service in Judaism. We ordain Jewish chaplains, and we have a master's degree program in Jewish studies. And we just formed a really interesting partnership with Loyola Marymount University in LA, which is a Catholic Jesuit university. And together we've decided, and this comes right from the heads of both of our schools, that we decided we wanted to become the most significant and influential interfaith institution in the entire country. So we put together we're put we've put together a partnership to do that. And in and part of that partnership is we now have moved our entire rabbinical school onto the campus of Loyola Marymount University, which is revolutionary. I mean, to have we're completely autonomous and do our own thing. However, we're a Jewish seminary located on the campus of a Jesuit college or university. And we're doing joint programming together so their students can take classes at our school and vice versa, and our professors teach back and forth. They have a really vibrant Jewish studies program, which we participate in and, and counseling them in now, and, and we're sort of working on joint programming. We're um, going to develop a, a, a program to do, uh, to, to do a master's or doctorate in interfaith studies And we're doing joint fundraising. There's a lot of money out there for interfaith relations now. So we're doing joint fundraising. Uh, And these are all things that are just like in the infancy stage. But we've embarked on this process. And so, uh, and we're doing like, I I just talked to the president of our board yesterday, and we're putting together this really cool joint programming with Loyola, uh, with Loyola Marymount uh, to do, uh, I think in January, we're going to do a joint program about like, just bringing friends of, of um, different faiths together and 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 having a whole celebration around, um, around that. I think we're gonna do it in January. January, February, I think is what she, if I remember correctly, is what she told me, but we're, we're in the process of putting that all together. So we're gonna to continue to do joint programming with them and knocking down the barriers between faiths.
0: You know, this is interesting and, and it resonates with me. Now, I'm my, I grew up in a Protestant denomination, and I'm a convert to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints when I was a student at the University of Illinois, 20 years old. I went to—I served a mission for the church. I, I met people from a lot of different faith backgrounds and perspectives in that experience. I went to law school at Brigham Young University, and there, I, I one of the courses I took was on an elective course was on jewish law mm-hmm. and the uh, uh, professor parker who taught that was uh, somebody who was had received awards i, I can't remember now uh, from but it was from the jewish scholastic community they recognized mm-hmm. him as being an, an authority one of their colleagues and you know here he's christian and uh, here i am at a a, at a law school that's sponsored by a Christian church, and uh, we're studying Jewish law. And then I ended up in the course of my career with the Department of Justice, spending over five years of my life in the work living and working in the Arab Middle mm-hmm. East, primarily Iraq and Egypt. And that's uh, you know ninety percent or 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 so uh, mm-hmm. Muslim. And there, you know, in Islam, they talk about the people of the mm-hmm. book. And the people of the book are the Jews, the Christians, and the Muslims. Yeah. And uh, this they recognize this commonality. Now, there's tensions, obviously, between Israel and the Arab mm-hmm. world. And yet, and this is something, I, I actually wrote this down, as you said, there is a lot of commonality in spirituality. Mm-hmm. And that is something I have experienced. I have observed it. You know, there's a lot of things that divide us, and yet this spirit of God, mm-hmm. this spirituality, mm-hmm. is an area of commonality. It, it's 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 almost a universal language, and it brings people together rather than right. dividing them.
1: Right, and I've tried to bring that to uh, to Temple Israel. One of the things we did when I came here was we rebranded the synagogue, and and we've you know made a conscious effort to bring the you know the the congregation like to move the congregation in a more spiritual direction. And uh, and so even in doing that, we even selected a new prayer book that we use, we use a new prayer book that we, you know, that we have only used since I got here. Um, and uh, and so, you know, we're, we're moving in that direction because there's tons and tons of spirituality in the Torah and in the Talmud. So in the Bible and in the Talmud, there's tons of spirituality. However, I just don't think we've done a very good job about you know, talking about that to people, about bringing that to the forefront and teaching people about that and how that works and and where it lies within those uh, those texts. Um, but there is tons of spirituality in those in those texts.
0: There is a, a thought in my mind here. I'd like to maybe and it could probably wrap things up here nicely, and that is the role of community in this spiritual experience. Now, you've talked about your own personal. Uh, relationship with God, and experiences that you've had personally. But here you are as the rabbi in a community, and you play a role in the greater Springfield, and not just Springfield, but other areas, interfaith community. So when you uh, can you talk about for a little bit the role of community, both in your own faith community and in the greater interfaith community in this spiritual experience that yeah. you have?
1: So I think it's very important for, um, for people to feel like they're part of a community, number one. And so, you know, in Judaism, we really say that you have to have 10 people, a minimum of 10 people to actually pray. And and you know, like in synagogue, there are certain rituals that we have that are built around having a minimum of ten adults. And uh and so, you know, we're really right from the from the Torah, there's a whole there's a whole um lot of community built into Judaism and spirituality within the Torah. And so uh community is very important to Judaism and you know, and, 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 other religions as well. And I think that's a commonality. That's a common ground between all faiths, that community is very important. Everyone knows that, that in Judaism, we're all about community and family and bringing people together. And, um, and this is a, a very, very critical piece of, uh, of, of any faith that, I, that I'm aware of, and so that's a real commonality between us all. And I also think that that um, you know, community is is something that we can share together. So here's a perfect example. Um, there's actually tomorrow night. There's actually a, an entire um, uh, uh, interfaith dialogue that's going on at at the Abraham Lincoln Museum between four Jewish women and four Muslim women and they've been doing this all around and they're coming here to Springfield to do this in conjunction with the Jewish Federation who's sponsoring this as well as the Abraham Lincoln Museum they're doing this in in partnership so there's a partnership in community between the Abraham Lincoln Museum and the Jewish Federation and then and then having all of these women who are you know of two different faiths having this interfaith dialogue uh, about Judaism and Muslim.
0: And I can't help but wonder about whether it will be through women that the world (laughs) comes together, whereas we guys tend to, you know, want to duke it out and all. But you're talking about something that, you know, even in our communities, our faith communities, we can become tribal. Mm -hmm. And we can put on blinders and become a, a closed and almost cloistered society right. within the greater society. And what you're talking about is taking off the blinders. And mm-hmm. I think you and I share yeah. that. Is it the faith community where where God works with people where they are, including in the communities where they are? I found my spiritual home. In the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, you have found your spiritual home and your calling as a rabbi in the Jewish community, and yet we both recognize that those are not tribes, those are parts of a larger community of faith.
1: Well, and what's beautiful about what's going to take place tomorrow night is it will bring the Muslim and the Jewish community together in the same place to hear this, because obviously there will be people from both um, from both of those you know faiths and both of those walks of life that will be present in the auditorium at the same time uh, listening to this together you know this is a commun- along with my right, wife and I right right <laughs> and along with a, a lot of other faiths too who are interested in you know hearing this so and that's one of the things that's great about the greater Springfield um, interfaith Association as well is that you know once a month, a, a, a lot of different faiths get together and talk about relevant topics. And so, you know, again, I think I just want to be a proponent of 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 helping to to foster that and 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 foster community and have communities come together. You know, there's also a a thing in in town here called the Children of Abraham, where all the Abrahamic religions bring their children together um, for events once a month. And um, and so I, I attend a lot of those and, and do work with the board um, of, the, uh, uh, of the Children of Abraham. And so there's, you know, there's just a lot of opportunity for us to bring communities together on common ground rather than to be divisive.
0: Well, Rabbi Stern, thank you very much for joining us for this conversation as part of our program the theme of which is finding spiritual unity among religious diversity and diversity of views about religion. And your experiences, your insights, and your message are really a valuable part of that. So thank you very much for joining us. Thank
1: you, David. I really appreciate you having me, man. I'm I'm really grateful that you would uh, uh, give me this opportunity. I'm truly honored. Thank you so much.
0: This is God Unites. Finding Spiritual Unity in Religious Diversity.